Heavenly Father, uh, you've done such an amazing work in our short existence as a ministry, Father. Men and women who've come together for one reason, because we love you, we love your word, we want to share it, we want to serve you, we want to uh, see the blessing of your word in more people's lives, and you've, you've taken our meager efforts, Father, and you've done a lot with it. Now we're ready, Father, for more. And we pray, Father, our work would always be pleasing to you because we do it in a heart that desires your glory and not our own, and that we would be uh, ready to answer the call in obedience no matter what you ask of us, and that your plans would prevail, not our own, and your will would be our concern, not our own. Thank you, Father, for the book of Romans, for I can't think of a, a better place to be in Scripture when our concerns, Father, are about serving you better, understanding you more, sharing you with the world. For I know that's, that's what this book has been for so many It's been their introduction to you, and it's been an opportunity for them to understand the depths of who you are and what you've done for us. So, Father, we don't want to lose that. We don't want to become too businesslike. Let us always stay focused on that mission. And tonight, Father, teach us as only you can out of Romans chapter 4. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I guess this is the room that survived the fire hydrant from last week, or at least most of you did. Uh, we're at the end of chapter 3, and the reason I keep calling it a fire hydrant was that last week we were looking at that summary that finished out chapter 3. That was Paul turning from all of the explanations for how you're not saved to turning to the one way that you receive righteousness, and he began that conversation just by laying the whole plan out in a handful of verses. God's solution for all the problems that he outlined earlier for how you can't get to heaven on your own. That also explains why that summary was a bit wordy and long, because he's putting the whole solution on the table before you and I have had a chance to really think about it in any depths, because he knows where he's going. He knows that as he goes through the coming chapters of this book, he's going to revisit that summary in parts, and each of those parts is going to be explored. So if last week seemed too fast and and with too many details, that's okay, because you're going to get more of that in proper form as we go. Just to get us back into that mindset, I want to quickly summarize his summary for what we covered last week. And it was in chapter 3, starting in verse 21. You can think of this as a roadmap for where we're going. So if you're the kind of mark in your Bible, if you even still have a paper Bible, if you have ways to sort of just put slashes between the parts in this section, and later when you go back, you can write above each of those little sections that you've created, the chapters and verses that are related to that section, so that you almost have an outline at that point of where you're going to go later in the book. So, for example, in verse 21... Paul says the solution is apart from the law. So you know Paul's going to eventually have to explain more about the relationship between God's law and salvation, since he said salvation is not a part of law. And he does that at the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Secondly, Paul said in that same verse that righteousness, the righteousness we need for heaven, is going to be God's own righteousness, not some repaired version of our own. So he's going to have to go on to give us a better explanation for how we get God's righteousness. Then at the very end of verse 21, you find the third part already, where he says this is a plan that was promised in the Old Testament by the prophets, by the law and the prophets. So Paul's going to have to take us to the Old Testament and show us some examples of where that's true. And he says the righteousness we receive from God in the next verse is manifested through our faith in Christ. Well, I'd like to know more details about how that process of imputing righteousness actually happens through faith, and he'll tell us. And then he added that this process is without distinction. So, show me how it's true for both Jew and Gentile. He will do that. And then he wrapped up the summary, saying that this solution arrives at us being declared justified, or we could say innocent, in God's court, 
And I would really like to know how I can be innocent in God's eyes. Because isn't that the whole point, right? That God is able to remain just, Paul says, in declaring us innocent, though we have our own sin, of course, because he publicly displayed his son as a sacrifice for our sake. So in the end, we want to understand how can one man's death save millions of people from a sin debt that they incurred, and yet at the same time allow God to remain outside any accusation of being unjust in the process. This is the plan that he has to deconstruct for us. And we're going to examine all of that in the coming chapters. Knowing all of this is going to be really helpful to you, not just in understanding how you came to be a Christian or what it means, but in defending your faith, explaining it to someone who finds some aspect of it incomprehensible or unjust or silly or whatever, and at the same time maintaining your own hope in the face of the schemes of the enemy who may come along at some point later in your walk and try to convince you that what you thought you had you didn't have or that it's in jeopardy or something of that sort. The more you know about how you're saved in Christ, the less likely you are to doubt it. And the better you can explain to someone else why you will be in heaven and how they can share that outcome. I mean, it's a basic fundamental purpose for being Christian and still being alive on this earth and not yet being with Christ. It's so that you can understand what you have and use it as a springboard to help others. That's the whole point. Otherwise, just take us home now. So let's move ahead. We're going to dive into the details of the summary. We're going to do it block by block. The very first of these explanations comes, as I said, at the end of chapter 3, where Paul starts to talk about apart from the law right away. And he does it here at the end of chapter 3 because it tends to tie into how he moved into the summary to begin with, coming out of nomianism, those who had preferred law over faith, or Judaism, those who felt their association with Jewishness was enough. Those issues immediately address law, the Jewish law. So he starts with that right away at the end of chapter 3. He said, The fact that the Lord has designed the plan of redemption without works removes any possibility that mankind is playing a part in their own salvation. And Paul talked there at the very end of chapter 3. He talked of a law of works versus a law of faith. You could replace the word law there with the word solution. Or you could say the means. So Paul's asking, how does God exclude the possibility of us boasting in his plan for salvation? Paul says he could not have done that if his solution had been one of works. A law of works. Because if he made the way of salvation a law of works, we would immediately have something we could claim as a part of the solution, right? We say we have some part of the the work to do. But what he did do instead was he made a solution dependent on faith, because faith is not a work, particularly when you remember that God himself is the author of that faith. So because the solution works through faith, Paul says, and not by works, it is not susceptible to human boasting, but for the same reason, it's available to both Jew and Gentile, because the Jews have the law, the Gentiles don't, But law doesn't matter. So that distinction doesn't matter. If law mattered, well, then only Jews could be saved because they're the only ones who have the law and a covenant. That's what many Jews thought, of course, because they misunderstood the role of the law. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians have come to misunderstand the role of the law, and they're starting to reassert it. But since the solution is based on faith, it nullifies that concern. Now, Paul ended chapter 3 with that thought. What does it say, then, that law is not a part of the plan of God for salvation? Does it nullify the law itself? That is, render it void, render it useless? Paul said no. You remember I said last week, the fact that the solution requires faith is an acknowledgement that the law is so demanding we can't meet its terms. What you're saying by faith is, I cannot get there from here in my own power. God will have to do it for me. That's my faith, my faith in God to solve this problem for me. 
it's a tacit acknowledgement that the law is a barrier. It's saying, I can't get there if I have to work my own way because the law is too demanding. So Paul says when the solution is by faith, it's not nullifying the law, it's affirming the law. It's establishing it. It's saying, because of the law, I need another solution. We need someone else to do the hard work for us. That brings us to chapter 4. In the little divisions I just called out in the summary, we just did the first one at the end of chapter 3. It's apart from law so that no man may boast and so that it's available to both Jew and Gentile. That brings us to 4, which is our second block, the Old Testament proofs. Why is it important that Paul would give us Old Testament proofs for what he's teaching now? Because everyone who knows God (laughs) understands that The church, the period of time since Christ's birth and death, are not the only human beings that God has been working with, that he has been at work in humanity long before that. So that raises the question, was there a method for salvation that preceded the one that we're now being given in the New Testament? If that were true, then it would certainly support the contention that God saves Jews one way and Gentiles another. And if that were true, it would divide the church out. And that's the concern that was developing in the first century. Paul is addressing that here, saying, no, 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 the plan's always been the same. Remember, Paul began by saying that the salvation we have is witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's the piece of the summary that we're now going to address. Law and the prophets, it refers to the entire Old Testament, as we would call it. Now, chapter 4, he's going to look for proofs. In the process, though, this gets more interesting than you might assume, because if you're sitting here saying to yourself, you had me at hello, You know, I don't need an Old Testament proof. I'm good. I get it. Well, that may be true, but there are some very interesting things that you learn about your own salvation as it relates to Old Testament concepts like circumcision or covenants that are still relevant today because of the way people misuse those concepts in other ways. I'll show you what I mean as we move. Go to Romans chapter 4, verse 1. And Paul starts with the classic example of salvation by faith. Abraham. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then... Shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, well, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Uh, Chapter 4 needs to be broken out in pieces. This is the first break because uh, Paul's thinking and and his development of his thought just moves very quickly from one point to the next. So we have to take it in stages. Let's start with this. Paul opens saying, what would we say about Abraham's relationship with the father? Paul says that Abraham was the forefather of the Jewish people by flesh. That is to say, everybody who's Jewish descended from that man. And as such... He becomes the most revered man in Israel, in all Judaism. Only Moses is a close second to Abraham. And because this man is such a powerful icon for every Jew, Paul chooses to use his example because it's a very strong point of comparison. He says, if you look at the way Abraham came to his righteousness, you'll see the same pattern that I'm describing for us now in the New Testament. The Bible, as you may remember, calls Abraham a friend of God, which tells you, that God must have found some way to overlook Abraham's sin and restore him in relationship. You you can't be a friend of God if you still have sin that has not been paid for because that puts you at odds with God. You're not at peace with God under those circumstances. Abraham being a friend, we know he was absolved of his sin. But Abraham lived long before God gave Israel the law. So that raises an obvious 
but important implication. He could not have known the requirements of the Old Testament law. He didn't have the Old Covenant. He didn't possess the tablets with the law on him. He didn't have the tabernacle. He didn't have the sacrificial system. There was no priesthood established for that sacrificial system yet. He had no means to follow it, even if he did know about it, because he couldn't have done all the laws related to the sacrifice. He's in good standing with the Lord without any of that stuff in place, which means, definitively, it could not have been on the basis of works of law, period. That shuts the door on any concept of law having a part in salvation. If one man can be declared righteous without the law, then anyone can be declared righteous without the law. So God must have had some other way. Paul says if Abraham had been restored to that relationship on the basis of good works, then the Bible would have forever acknowledged Abraham's excellent service, his excellent work. We would forevermore be talking about Abraham as the example of good works, of obedience, of piety. That's the way we would remember him if that's the way God restored him. And Abraham, for his part, could have been boasting about it in the scriptures, right? You remember when a patriarch is close to death, he'll put blessings on all his sons, and there's a a sense there of reverence about his life and his accomplishments. You would have found examples in scripture of Abraham bragging about his accomplishments to his sons in that context. You would have seen him saying things like, um, as he blessed them, he would have said, look, you need to look at my example. I obeyed God, and by my righteous works, God has restored me. You should do the same. He wouldn't be boasting in the sense of something inappropriate. It would have been boasting in the same way that a father tells his son or daughter, you need to follow my example to be a good student or to be a good worker. It's the same idea. You never see that. Abraham never makes any such claim about his life, never tries to encourage anyone else to do the same. The Bible never speaks of him in those ways. Instead, the Bible says Abraham was the father of, you don't know the word? The father of faith. That's the, that's his, he's a friend of God and the father of faith. Paul here quotes from Genesis 15.6. When the Lord testified that Abraham believed God, that the Lord promised Abraham and his wife that his wife would bear him a son, even though she was you know, long past childbearing years, she had never given birth to anyone yet. But solely, and this is where your own theology starts to crystallize, based solely on the revealed word of God, Abraham believed a promise from God that that promise would come true. Then... Because of Abraham's faith in that promise, in his word, the Lord credited Abraham's faith as righteousness. And this is an example of imputed righteousness, which we talked about a little bit last time. That is, God assigned something, righteousness, to Abraham, which Abraham did not possess. And that assignment was not based on Abraham's action or or anything of Abraham at all. It was a decision of God to give it to Abraham. Like a child chosen for adoption by new parents. That's imputing a new name to an adopted child or imputing, in this case, righteousness to a man who believes something God said. Now, Paul elaborates on this key point in verse 4. We're going to spend a minute on verse 4. Because Paul says Abraham didn't earn anything in that exchange. If Abraham had been declared righteous because of anything he did, the scriptures would not have described that appointing of righteousness as a credit. Instead, It would have said that he earned his righteousness as a part of some wage paid to him by God for his hard work. But the Bible says that Abraham's righteousness was not paid to him, but was credited to him, or in some versions, reckoned to him. Imagining it this way, God, in his role as the bookkeeper of men's souls, he lined out, as it were, Abraham's debt of sin. Whatever that was, he lined it out on the ledger... 
And then the side of righteousness, he put a credit. And he marked Abraham's account paid in full. In verse 5, Paul adds that this credit came to Abraham solely because of his faith in God, that God is the justifier of the ungodly. This statement raises some very important doctrinal aspects that we need to address, some, some aspects of our doctrine of salvation by grace and not by works. First of all, notice what Abraham was believing in. What would you say he was believing in? It says he believed in him who justifies the ungodly. There are three details that emerge from that statement. And these are details that will help correct bad theology as it comes along. Uh, These statements give us the framework of the saving gospel. First, Abraham's faith is in a person. Notice it says he believed in him, which refers to God and perhaps more specifically the Messiah. In the gospels, when Jesus looks back on this moment, he says this, John 8, 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Well, we know Abraham didn't live long enough to see it personally, and there's no record of him getting a vision of it. I think what Jesus meant was he saw it in the sense of a faith in it. He saw it in the sense of he expected it. He didn't have to see it with his eyeballs. He was dead sure it was coming. And in that sense, he saw it. He rejoiced in the day it would come, and he was glad for it. So Abraham's faith is not in an event. It's not even in a blessing, whether you call that the blessing of having a son or of the whole covenant, for that matter. Yes, he believed in the promise that God was going to do all those things concerning a son and all that, but his faith was not in the blessing. If someone makes you a promise about anything in life, what causes you to trust in that promise? Isn't your faith based in the trustworthiness? and the capacity of the person to keep the promise, right? If a used car salesman promises you a million dollars and Warren Buffett promises you a million dollars, which promise do you believe? Those promises are exactly the same. They're equally the same promise, every word the same, but why would you believe one and not the other? And if anyone in here is a used car salesman, my apologies for using that example. But let's face it, we all would trust Warren Buffett. We would not trust the used car salesman, right? What's different, of course, is the promisor. The promisor is different. Abraham believed the promise of God when he probably wouldn't have believed that promise if some charlatan had come up the day before and said, you're going to have a son. The change is that he believed the promiser had the faithfulness and the capacity to fulfill that promise, the promise concerning Isaac. And so it was Abraham's faith in the trustworthiness of God that led him to believe. And by that faith, God was pleased to credit Abraham with righteousness. I go through this with you now because this is exactly the same process for anyone who is saved by grace at any point in history. The person receives a promise from God. That person places their faith or their belief in God to fulfill that promise. They expect that what has been promised will come to pass, and they put all doubt aside. The future promise of God is as certain to them as the history of yesterday, because they know the one who promised is faithful to keep his word. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And notice he adds, for by it, that assurance and conviction, by it, the men of old gained approval. And that leads us to the second important theological point raised in this little verse. What Hebrews does not say is faith in Christ is what gained them approval. Did you notice that? 
It didn't define faith in terms of a specific idea, like believing in Christ. And that's the second point we need to address. Throughout history, the object of our saving faith has never changed. The object of our faith is always God. We're putting our faith in God, in His performance of a given promise. Once again, Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, God is, and that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So like Abraham, Christian faith today is faith in God, specifically the person of Christ. And what is our faith about? That God will fulfill, Christ will fulfill His promises to justify us and raise us from the dead. We place our trust in Him to keep that promise. And we base our trust in Him on the testimony and the power of God to keep His word concerning us. I mean, if you think about it cynically... You've said that when you die, everything's going to be fine, and yet you can't prove it to anyone. You can't really even prove it to yourself, although God testifies to us to the truth of what He said in our hearts, but in a more tangible way, if you will, in a, in a secular sense, can you prove to anyone that you're going to be fine when you die? No, of course not. But we put all our eggs in that basket. I mean, theoretically, if we were wrong, for example, and we're not, but let's just talk in theory. If we were wrong, we got no plan B. In fact, if someone has a plan B, they're not saved. If, if it's syncretism, you know, take a little Jesus, take a little Muhammad, let's throw it all together and one of them will work. That's not saving faith because you haven't done what the Bible's asked of you, to believe in God's promise to the exclusion of all else, which is the promise itself requires that. So our faith is in a God who has made a promise and we believe he'll keep it. But while the object of our faith never changes, it's always in God to keep a promise, the content of the promise has differed from age to age as God has worked to reveal more of his plan to humanity. So in the earliest times, the Lord had revealed only the bare minimums of what his plan was to redeem mankind from sin. Men knew God was going to make a way to justify them. They knew they couldn't do it on their own, that God was going to be merciful and provide some solution. But that didn't mean they necessarily understood all that God was going to do to bring it about. Noah, Abraham... David, even the prophets, only knew parts of the plan. So we could say the object of the faith is never different, but the content of what we believe in could vary over history. For example, Noah's promise was that if you build a boat, you'll survive a flood. Abraham was told you'll have a son in your old age. David was told he'll always have an heir who would rule on the throne of Israel. The prophets were told that God would give his people a new covenant, write his law on their heart, bring them into a kingdom one day where a Messiah would rule. Each of those is an elaboration on the prior one. Each of those is a building out of the plan in greater detail. In each case, the content of God's promise differed, growing from generation to generation as he revealed more. But in all cases, the object of the faith remains the same. We remain convinced God has a plan to justify the ungodly. Through some means, even more than, even though we don't understand the whole plan. I mean, can any of us really say we understand the full plan of what God has for us? We just know enough to know who to put our trust in. Today, God has revealed all that He intends to this side of heaven. And now that that full plan has been revealed in the Word of God, the content of our faith today and the object of our faith today are one and the same. So that's why the Bible refers to all the time of history after Christ's revealing as the last days. You know, the Bible 
talks about living in the last days. And Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews actually says this in Hebrews 1, 2. Here again, Hebrews has the perfect summary. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the writer says, and this was written in the first century, obviously, 2,000 years ago, and even then he was saying, we're in the last days. So that tells you, in a sense, what the definition of the term is. The definition of the term last days is the period of history after which God has made full revelation as to the content and object of our faith. We now don't have a difference between the two. Now, the content of your faith is that God would send a Messiah to die for you on a cross. The object of your faith is in that Messiah who proved himself to be the one promised when he raised himself from the dead. So now, the two are one. There's no differentiation between them. But until that was made known to the world through the events of the first century, when Jesus came, there was a slight gap between the two. And in the ancient past, there was a big gap. But the point has always been the same. God would justify us. He has the means and the willingness to do it. Do I trust in that? And then finally, the last point raised by verse 5. Saving faith is trusting in God to, as I just said, justify the ungodly. But the point there is our faith begins with a recognition that we are unworthy. The Bible uses another term for that. The Bible uses the term repentance. That, in other words, a prerequisite to believing in God unto salvation is to recognize we got a problem and he needs to solve it for us. We aren't worth getting to heaven on our own. We are in real trouble with a living God who will hold us accountable for our sin. If we don't admit that and submit to his plan of redemption in place of anything we've got on our own, then we will never have that mercy. It is a willingness to recognize he is the justifier of people who need justification. That's what we mean when we say repentance. Repentance sometimes is, is mischaracterized in, in the way we talk about it. We tend to think of it as a litany of sins that we have to say I'm sorry for. And if we get through the whole list with God and we've said sorry for everything we've ever done, that then leaves us open to salvation. But you know, anybody who thinks about it for more than 10 seconds would tell themselves that's ridiculous because, first of all, I can't remember them all. Secondly, I'm sure I've done things I don't even know. Thirdly, that would take forever. I mean, that's a work in a sense, isn't it? So repentance unto salvation, repent and believe, in other words, is not a reciting of all you've done wrong and then saying you're sorry about it. That's not at all what it means. It means in a more fundamental sense, this idea that I turn from any thought of self-righteousness, of earning my own way into heaven, or of deserving it for any reason at all, putting all that aside, turning from that and turning to the God who justifies the ungodly. Leaning on Him. Romans 2.4 says it this way. We've covered this verse, obviously, in chapter 2, but listen to it again from this perspective. Paul says, Do you not think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I think it's speaking on multiple levels, but it's saying that repentance is this personal awareness that I can't get there on my own, so I'm going to stop trying, much like the prodigal son, and I'm going to turn around and go back to the one who can get me there and appeal to his mercy for that solution. Trusting in God to justify the ungodly. So Abraham is declared righteous because of his faith in God's trustworthiness to keep his promises to justify him an undeserving, ungodly sinner. And because of that faith, 
God did the very thing he wanted, crediting him with righteousness. Note, God did not make Abraham righteous. God credited his heavenly account with righteousness. So that at the moment that Abraham died and stood before God following that death, he was acquitted at that point because when God looked at the ledger, he says, Oh, you can come in. I see that you're righteous. That's not to say that he was on earth, but it is to say that his account has been paid in full. The rest of the story of Abraham reminds us that this man was not sinless. If you know the story of Abraham, broadly speaking, from Genesis 12 onward, and especially as it follows 15, 15 is where he's declared righteous. What does he do after 15? Well, there's some real high-profile sins that come out of his life even after that fact. And yet, the judge's declaration of not guilty, it's in effect. It doesn't change. Is never reversed. It can't be reversed because justification is, is not a description of his condition. That is to say, God did not declare him to be sinless. It's a declaration of God's judgment. That is, that he sees Abraham as guiltless. You see the difference? He's not sinless, he's guiltless. And at one point in his life, as we all will be one time, will be sinless. But for now, it's a declaration of guiltlessness. So Abraham's proof is this. That salvation is never by doing works because of when Abraham lived, that is, before the law. And having lived before the law, he proves that the law is not a part of a plan that can save someone because he got saved without it. Secondly, his example is proof of salvation without works because of how the Lord declared that he was saved. He was credited. He didn't earn it. So his works have zero bearing. By the way, if this is true prior to being justified, then it remains equally true after you are justified. And maybe this is the point the church should hear most in these days. If you were not saved by your works coming in, then works have no part of your salvation afterward either. And that works both ways. In other words, you didn't work your way into salvation, so you cannot sin your way out of salvation. Your works have no bearing on your standing before God. They were all bad to begin with. How much worse do you think you're going to be than you were before you knew Him? Your works have nothing to do with this whatsoever. Your works were why you needed God to justify you because they were the problem to begin with. So coming out of that moment, having been justified, there's no need now to start to add works to the formula or, for that matter, to abstain from sin just to stay saved. Now, there's other reasons you abstain from sin, but that's not about how you stay saved. Staying saved, being saved, has nothing to do with works. It can't because of Abraham's example. So a Christian does not become more righteous because of good works after faith than he or she did before. Our righteousness has to come by other means, Paul said. So you might think that Abraham's example pretty much shuts the door on any question about works as a part of your salvation, and it doesn't, which is why chapter 4 doesn't end at verse 5. If the chapter had ended here, what could have developed in our theology? Well, some could argue that God changed the rules after Abraham's day. They could agree with everything Paul's just said and say, yes, but then later God decided he wanted it differently. And they would point to things like the law coming into practice after Abraham's life. And that the rules for salvation were updated to include now the law as a part of it. So following Moses now, now we have to follow law if we're to be saved. Before Moses it was different, but now with the law we have to change. You may have even heard some argue this point. I have. I have heard people who call themselves Christian, probably are in many cases, but somehow have been convinced that the law in its arrival had some bearing on God's plan for what he expected from his people in terms of salvation. So Paul has to continue in dealing with this through another Old Testament proof, a very brief mention of a second major Old Testament example. This now is the example of David. 
David in Romans 4, verse 6 through 8, he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes here from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So this is a psalm written by David. That's why he says David spoke these words. And in the first two verses of the psalm here, David declared that the blessed man or woman is one whose lawless deeds or sins have been forgiven by God. So this is a definition, in a sense, of the word blessed. Although I know we use this word in a very general sense, and that's fine. David's using it in a very technical sense here. What would be the ultimate definition of being blessed by God? By any measure you could come up with, what is the ultimate of being blessed by God? It has, to be, it has to be in glory with Him and salvation in the kingdom, right? The full realization of His promises. Yes, there could be lesser blessings of today, but in comparison, do we even care about those? Wouldn't you trade every blessing of today for that blessing? So when we think of the word in its ultimate sense, which is what Psalm 32 is doing, you arrive at that thinking right away. What does it mean to be blessed in the ultimate sense? He says, it's having your sins covered. This is a literal translation of the Hebrew. The word for cover in Hebrew is cover. Because to cover sin is euphemism for atonement. That is to make a payment for a debt. You know, we use the same term today, right? We say we have to cover our debts. It's that sense. So he's saying, blessed is having your sin debt paid for you. And then he adds, a person is blessed when the Lord does not take his sin into account. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it reads this way. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin, and whose mouth there is no guile. So there's that word again, impute. That's why I use that translation. I think that's a really good way to understand what's being said here. But it's imputation in the negative sense here, compared to the way we've been talking about it. So it's used here in the negative fashion. David's saying, we're blessed when the Lord does not count our sin against us. He does not impute our sin against us. Rather, we're blessed because he does the opposite. He imputes his righteousness in its place. But you notice how Paul introduces the quote in verse 6. He says, if you really understand what David's saying here, David is testifying that God credits righteousness. Apart from works. That's the language here. David said, blessedness is having your debts covered. That means someone else paid for your debt, not you paying for it with your own works. And God said that he would not hold our debts against him, that he would forgive them. Again, that's not working your way out of your problem. That's somebody just going up and saying, forget you ever had a problem. That's imputation of righteousness. That's salvation by faith in some sense, not works. It's just a little hidden because David doesn't use the word works. He just talks about it in a different fashion. David says, that's how you're blessed. Therefore, trying to work off your debt by yourself is the opposite, isn't it? If by definition salvation through a means other than works is being blessed, then it would have to be that salvation through works would be the opposite of that. And anyone who has ever labored under the misconception that your works get you into heaven can testify to the fact that that is not a blessing to live that way. Talk to anyone who's ever lived under a works-based system, Catholicism, Mormonism, a host of others in this world. When they've come to faith afterward, they look back on that life and they realize just how unblessed that life was. It's an almost non-stop sense of condemnation and doubt, interrupted only by short periods of self-righteous pride. Because that's all you have. The good days you think you're doing a lot of good work and you feel good about yourself, and then all the other days in between when you're worried that you haven't done enough. That's for the ones who are really invested in those systems. David's example serves as our second witness 
in support of Paul's point. But he chose these two men for a very specific reason. These two men together slam the door on any suggestion that the law of Moses has some connection here. Because as we already said, Abraham was saved before the law, so that sort of says you don't need it. But David says that his sins were covered and his relationship with the Lord was established on the basis of imputation of righteousness. He says that after the law. David is your example that the law didn't change anything. The same thing was true before as it was after. Two examples sandwiched on either side. So if salvation was trusting God to justify the ungodly before the law, and it's the same after the law, then the law did not change the plan. The law is good, it's holy, it's necessary. Paul will explain later why, but it's not a part of your salvation. So Paul said in chapter 3 that God's plan of salvation was witnessed in the law and in the prophets. And now in chapter 4, he's shown that to be true with two witnesses. One from the law, that is to say, the story of Abraham is found in Genesis. Genesis is one of the first five books of the Bible, which the Jews collectively call the law. So Abraham is the example of the law testifying, and the the Psalms are considered part of the prophets, they're prophetic, and so you see now from the prophets the testimony that salvation is by faith and not by works. So the law and the prophets are testifying in the form of Abraham and David. The only thing that's changed in our history is how much detail we know about this plan. Um, Next, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, this one has to do with the distinction of Jew and Gentile. Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of his faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. All right, we're going we're gonna to pull this apart, but you're going to find this to be very relevant to some things that you may experience in the church today, but you may not see it coming. Paul just says simply to this question of, is this for everyone or just for Jews or what? He says simply, well, let's look at this question. What was Abraham's state? when he was declared righteous before God. In that moment, was he circumcised or not? No. no. And everyone, in anyone who knew their Bible would know that answer, right? Circumcision is like a Jewish birth certificate. It, it, seriously, you should think of it as the Jewish birth certificate. It was the basis for Jewish identity. It was the sign that you belonged to the Abrahamic covenant. You notice he calls it the sign of the covenant. Every boy born in the family of Israel was to be circumcised at the age of eight days old. Women are not circumcised, of course, but they were included under this sign through their association with the male authority figure in their life. So a daughter was covered by the sign of her father. When the girl married, she's covered by the sign of her husband. Therefore, circumcision was a key distinction between Jew and Gentile. And since Paul uses Abraham, he knows how he says, for we say faith was credited to Abraham in verse 9. He's just acknowledging he was the one who raised Abraham as his example. And everyone knows Abraham was circumcised. He was the first. So Paul says, since I used Abraham as my example, the father of the Jewish people, that raises the question, is this plan only for the Jewish people who are circumcised? But here again, the Lord orchestrated Abraham's life in such a way that the timing of the events would ensure that we couldn't come to that mistake. 
Because Paul says in verse 10, the moment that he was justified, the moment God declared him not guilty in chapter 15, happens two chapters earlier than when he gets circumcised in chapter 17. So clearly, circumcision is not a part of salvation either. And it's apparent that God created that gap in time just to make that clear to us. But more than that, there's something deeper going on here. It means that Jewish identity is not a part of the plan either. Jewish people are important to God's plan. But Jewish identity is not a prerequisite for salvation, which Abraham proves. Because he didn't have that identity in the moment that he was declared righteous. So that raises a couple of interesting questions which lead to some Christian applications. First, what is the significance of circumcision? In Jewishness, I'm saying, in the way God prescribed it. Paul gives us that answer in verses 11 through 12. Paul says, Abraham received circumcision as a sign, or as he calls it later, a seal, of the righteousness of the faith that Abraham had beforehand. This is what Paul's saying. Paul says that the sign is a witness to the covenant that God made with Abraham. So that mark he put in his body served as evidence that he was in a covenant with God. And God ordered him to take that mark after he had believed to make that point to the world. But a sign is not the enacting of a covenant. It follows the enacting of a covenant. A sign signifies that a covenant has been formed. Like a highway sign that announces that you're approaching a city. The sign did not make the city reality. It's not like you went out in the middle of the desert and set a sign up and the next second a city appeared. Right? I mean, that's what you'd be saying if you said signs make the reality happen. No, the city happened first, the beginnings of it, and then someone had to put a sign up to say, there's a city coming up. We only erect it after something's been established. So circumcision was an outward sign or evidence of Abraham's faith in the promise that God gave him, which Paul said he had beforehand. And then God designed the method of circumcision to reinforce this truth. Let me take you back for a second into Genesis. In Genesis 17, listen to how God prescribes it to happen. In verse 10, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So God commanded that the mark be taken when? Eight days old. It's a very early age. That mark in the flesh is given to a male child at eight days old before that child's old enough to choose that mark for himself or to even understand it. That reminds you that the covenant was already in force for that child. That child was already in the Abrahamic covenant the moment it was born on the basis of a promise that said all who come out of Abraham's loins, those through Abraham, uh, Isaac and Jacob, are in this covenant. Just as that covenant was in effect for Abraham also before he was circumcised by virtue of his belief in the promise. It goes even further in verse 14 of what I read. He says, if a child is not circumcised, what does he say? Does he say, if he's not circumcised, he won't be in my covenant? He says, if he's not circumcised, he has broken my covenant. That means the covenant is already in place. You can't break something unless it's already in place. 
So this same relationship between covenant and sign holds true in the new covenant. The Lord makes a promise to you and I concerning His Son, our Savior. And as we trust in those promises, we call it believing in the gospel, we're declared righteous on the basis of our faith in that promise. Then later, we take the sign of the covenant when we submit to water baptism. When we go into the water to be baptized, we're submitting to taking on the sign. Water baptism follows our entry into the covenant. It doesn't bring the covenant into effect. It doesn't save you, in other words. So God determined that the timing of circumcision would be at eight days old to teach us that the relationship between the covenant of Abraham and the sign follow in this way, that Abraham's faith brought him to righteousness before the covenant was in place. The sign is taken after the covenant is in place. And so Abraham serves as a model for both the Jew who has been circumcised and the Gentile who is not, because Abraham was saved before he took the mark, before he became part of that group. The answer to the question of how you become righteous is the same for both groups. By faith, irrespective of when or if you get circumcised. But this leads to some important distinctions between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. The Abrahamic covenant promised the blessing of Jewish identity for those who are born into the line of Abraham. The Jews who enter into that covenant do so by birth. And they join a physical line that has been given a series of blessings because of Abraham's faith. In other words, God credited faith to Abraham for his belief in those promises, but he made a promise to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. So here's God offering a one-way treaty. To you and your descendants, here's what I'm going to do. Abraham believed that, and that's how he got his personal righteousness. But the promise was for the whole progeny of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, eventually. The mark was to be this sign that he asked for, this circumcision. But that covenant does not automatically convey the spiritual blessing that Abraham received by his faith. Look at the last piece of what I read. Look what he says in chapter 4. He says in verse 11, He is a father to those who believe without being circumcised. That is, to those who repeat what he did when he believed a promise. But verse 12, And he's also a father to those who are circumcised. But notice he adds a qualification for that group. To those who are not only physically circumcised, but have to also follow in the steps of his faith. That's a big distinction. For you and I as a Gentile, presuming we're not taking circumcision as a religious matter, I'm saying, we're not part of Israel. So we don't have to worry about our keeping of that covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant, or for that matter, of the old covenant. We're not parties to those covenants. All we have to do is repeat the faith of Abraham, and that was sufficient to bring us into righteousness, because that's the thing that creates righteousness. You could, ironically, take the mark of circumcision at eight days old and never actually have any faith that God's going to keep his promises under the Abrahamic covenant, because you never got asked. You're a party to the covenant, because it wasn't dependent on you to agree to it, but salvation is faith in God to keep his promises. But you only gain the spiritual benefits if you believe in them. So the Abrahamic covenant was not a means to salvation. Abraham was not saved because of the covenant. He was saved because he believed the promises that God made in the covenant. And it established a series of promises to be fulfilled in Abraham's family line called Israel. And God is fulfilling those promises in that family line. And he's doing it without it depending on anyone's individual faith in the body of Israel. 
Whether all Israel is unbelieving or all Israel was believing doesn't change the fact that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham in what he said he would do through those people. For an individual Jew to go to heaven, they still have to believe in the promises God has made to them concerning how he will justify the ungodly. Only those who believe as Abraham did will receive the righteousness that Abraham received. So Paul says in verse 12, Abraham is the father in the flesh of those who have received physical circumcision, but he can be their father as an example in faith if they follow that example. So he serves as an example of one who obtains righteousness by faith, whether to the Jew who is circumcised or the Gentile who is not. There's always that confusion we have about what does it mean that someone has the sign or the mark of the covenant? What does it mean that the Abrahamic covenant was made or the old covenant? These things serve earthly purposes that eventually get fulfilled in spiritual ways. But you only gain the spiritual benefits if you believe in them. They can still be done through your people, through a body of people, without that body of people believing in them because God is working the work that he promised. Paul still has another area that he has to get into in order to address a few more doubts. Because even if it sounds ironclad right now, Jews had always been taught that they had a special relationship to God, and they assumed incorrectly that the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant were limited to them. So he's going to go looking at the Gentile side of this when he comes back. Thank you, Father, for challenging us in our understanding of some of these details, Father. But also for reminding us that we just flat out do nothing to put ourselves in heaven. Even the faith, Father, that you give us is a sign that you have come to us and revealed yourself. And as we now understand these things, as we begin to understand these things more deeply, Father, I pray that it would also help our walk, giving us confidence to serve you and not to get sidelined in concerns about guilt or unworthiness. Father, it's clear enough that we're unworthy. That's why you gave us a plan of your own. But now that you have, Father, and our account has been cleared in heaven, Give us boldness. Give us confidence. Not haughtiness, not self-righteousness, but, Father, a sense of peace that lets us work without friction, without delay, without hesitation, to serve you wherever you call us. Thank you, Father, for that gift. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.